The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation, ordinance, and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. As we concluded episode 1, we broke ground on the fact that, as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, marriage is in reality a creation ordinance designed 
instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation, like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. Like Eve, the type, the substance, the church, Christ's bride, is designed to be brought to her bridegroom, Christ, like Adam. The two are meant to be one by relationship bound together in perfection in God's eyes. In this episode, we intend to take this working type theory revealed by God and provide further evidence and insight into its substance. If our proposed theory is correct, then we should expect to see progressive revelation along these lines within Scripture. If we survey Scripture, what, if any, examples might we find? To begin with, for those who have perhaps been listening regularly to our ongoing series of podcasts with a theme of Types and Shadows, you will hopefully recall several episodes which touch closely along these lines. While it would be counterproductive to repeat all of the details of those in question, it would be instructive to summarize those involved. First of all, there was a two-part episode entitled The Bride of Isaac. Within the context of this episode, The Bride of Isaac episodes are both important because they demonstrate that historically there was a very early Jewish ritualistic understanding in place regarding the marriage process. Since these cultural rituals existed in Isaac and Abraham's time, it is reasonable to infer that these rituals were in turn given to them and were thus in place prior to Abraham. In point of fact, the ultimate inference, if not the implicit revelation, is that the fundamental guidelines, patterns, rules, and rituals which form the shadows and types of the creation ordinance of marriage were given directly from God to Adam and Eve as they fellowshiped in the Garden of Eden. Remember, we are not told how much time went by from the time Adam and Eve were created and joined as man and wife, and the fall. We assume that it was a short period of time because the narrative only takes about one chapter to tell. But it could have been much longer. If during this time Adam and Eve continued to fellowship with God, then it is logical to believe that Adam and Eve asked questions regarding God, their relationship to him, what the purpose of marriage was, etc. At first, what was discussed between God, Adam, and Eve was likely only an oral account handed down to their respective children. As time went on, it is possible, if not likely, that these various guidelines, rituals, rules, and instructions from God became increasingly codified into the everyday cultural habits and norms of those who lived in the mainstream of God's redemptive history. Looking back within the Bible, what we oftentimes today read as seemingly obscure, eclectic Bible stories if properly understood, become the stage of some type and shadow theater. 
The colorful backdrops, players, and scripts are in fact narratives which, if properly understood, portray the various substances which loom waiting to be revealed. In the case of the Bride of Isaac, by summary we saw Abraham, who was the type of God the Father, who sent his servant Eleazar, the type of the Holy Spirit, to seek a bride, i.e. Rebekah, who is the type of the church, for his son Isaac, who is the type of Jesus. The servant was placed under an oath to go to Abraham's kinsmen, rather than the Canaanite people, who are the type of those who rebel against God. Eleazar, who is Abraham's servant, embarks on his mission with camels and other riches belonging to Abraham's house as gifts for the bride. Eleazar interacts with Rebekah to draw and entice her into the prospect of a relationship and a marriage with Isaac. In the end, the incident tells the substantive story of the interplay between the father the Son, and the Holy Spirit in their respective roles of the redemptive process. While a complete listening review of this episode would be worthwhile to a fuller understanding of the subject, the underlying point is that there was a clear framework already in place at the time regarding God's plan for marriage as a type of His church, i.e. the bride, and the relationship to the groom, Christ. Rather than imagining that incidents such as these were mere happenstance or accident, it is more likely the case that incidents such as this can be traced back to behaviors and habits based upon teachings which originated in the Garden of Eden. Proceeding forward, there is the two-part episode entitled The Ancient Jewish Wedding. This is next to, if not equal with, the episode as being the greatest single, standalone example of marriage. It is a quintessential type and shadow example of the relationship between Christ and His Church. Nowhere do we get a clearer picture intended of God's reverence toward His elect bride than here. The sheer attention to detail with every aspect of the type with the ancient Jewish wedding being a direct parallel to the dynamics of God's redemptive plan leaves no room for allegation of coincidence or accident. Everything there is by design and purpose, as is no surprise. In order to fully appreciate the details, I would seriously direct the listener to the episode itself for details. In point of fact, were it not for the sake of time, the ancient Jewish wedding must be considered part and parcel of this episode. It is virtually critical to appreciating the inexorable link between God's creation ordinance of marriage as a type and the substance of Christ and His Church. In summary, the two episodes detail the Jewish custom of the Father, who was generally responsible for seeking a bride for his son. The Father or in some cases, his trusted aide goes out and selects a prospective bride. The father, or his aide, then initiates a contact with the bride's father, paying a price for the right to secure the marriage. 
The bride is consulted, and if she approves, a contract is signed between the parties, i.e. the father, the groom-to-be, the bride-to-be, and the bride's father. Gifts are exchanged, a toast is given, and the marriage is considered done. The bride remains as a virgin, apart from the groom, for as much as two years, while the groom builds a suitable home for the two. Eventually, when the father chooses, he sends his son to collect the bride and to return to their completed home. Upon arrival, a wedding feast is given, the marriage is consummated, and the two live happily together as one. This episode points out the various correlations of the type to the substance of Christ, who is the groom, the groom's father, who represents God the Father, and the aid, who is the Holy Spirit, and the bride, who is the church. Again, as with every other instance, we are reminded that these typological details, the rules, and the guidelines which formed the basis of this Jewish wedding ritual go back to the garden itself. Hence, we begin to realize that the ancient Jewish wedding, marriage, the creation ordinance of marriage, prophecy, history, and every aspect of God's word were and are a complex tapestry with manifold colors, designs, and textures, all of which are by design a shadow and type pointing to the substance which is Jesus, the Christ, and our ultimate relationship in and with him. As we consider the purposeful, loving, and awesome detail and attention by God from eternity, we must by need dismiss any pretense or imagination that biblical marriage is anything less than a finished masterpiece by God's hand from the outset. We are not at liberty to pull out threads which displease us. We are not given permission to add to or take away from the type or the substance. To do so is not only mere folly, but is in fact a blunt disrespect to both the type and more importantly disrespect to the substance, God. The closest analogy which gives clarity would be the tabernacle in the wilderness. We know, based upon scripture, that the pattern for the tabernacle was given directly by God to Moses. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, we read where God tells Moses to build a tabernacle, saying, quote, According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it, unquote. Secondly, Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, which says, quote, And look, that thou make them after the pattern which was showed to thee in the mount. Unquote. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, looks back at the same event and comments, saying, quote, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Unquote. So in the end, the earthly tabernacle was constructed as a type and shadow for a place of approach, worship, 
and fellowship between God and man. This earthly tabernacle depicted the substance portrayed in perfection in heaven. God went on to give countless details on the materials, construction, rules, and regulations regarding entrance, worship, and sacrifice within the tabernacle. Any deviation, any changes, any failure to respect the various requirements of the tabernacle would, and in many cases did, lead to serious consequences. Thus, the tabernacle and its various customs were by design intended to be reverenced and respected. Just so, the creation ordinance of marriage was and is a type and shadow patterned after a reality, a substance found in heaven. Just like any type, the creation ordinance of marriage was and is intended to be an inviolable, copywritten institution designed to be reverenced and respected. Any departure from the type, any violation of the rules and regulations, mars and damages important features of the substance and potentially endangers the welfare of those who do so. Keep in mind that it was God who designed the tabernacle, and it is God who designed marriage. The tabernacle wasn't just any edifice one chose to erect and worship at. Instead, the tabernacle was a specific building with specific materials put together a specific way. Even so, marriage is a specific relationship not just whatever suits someone's personal fancy. The tabernacle had a profound meaning pointing to a heavenly substance in every detail. Likewise, marriage was and is designed to have a profound meaning in every detail pointing to a greater substance. Ultimately, the tabernacle and its system was one which was designed by God to be used, appreciated, respected, honored, and reverenced as a place where worship, fellowship, and interaction exclusively between God and His people took place. Any failure on the part of God's people to respect the tabernacle and its observances meant compromising God's favor, acceptance, grace, peace, and forgiveness, and instead receiving one's well-deserved judgment, wrath, justice, condemnation, and punishment. The result was that the tabernacle was not treated like a common playground at the local park. Instead, the tabernacle was a place of awe, respect, reverence, fear, and great joy. I would submit that as with many types, including the tabernacle, Marriage was and is one of those great types and shadows created, designed, implemented, maintained, and blessed by God as an ordinance which was and is intended to point towards the substance which is Christ, who is the bridegroom, and his bride, which is the church. By this time, it should be obvious that marriage is, in fact, a product of design by God. It was engineered by God according to His blueprint. It is not some random happenstance of chance or accident. 
It is not some self-defined, self-governed event given by any meaning of any kind whatsoever according to what man sees right in his own eyes. Like everything else, it already has a set standard meaning given by God who is the ultimate authority over meaning, morals, beauty, truth, justice, and mercy. At this point, perhaps as I do, some will say, I understand this is how God intended marriage to be, but as I look around, that's not what I see. What I see is a lot of confusion and people doing their own thing. I see marriage, divorce, multiple marriages, multiple divorces, fighting, court battles, child visitation, and more. Yes, you're right. In short, we see the world of mankind marred by sin. The world and marriage as we have discussed it thus far is the world created in perfection by God. There was no sin, no confusion, no fighting, none of these things we see today on a daily basis. Because all we see and experience is a product and result of sin, God's created world of perfection seems like an idealistic fairy tale. Sadly, because we are unable in ourselves to avoid sin, sin very routinely becomes marginalized or even normalized. Perhaps sin may even become redefined from being sin and rebellion to simply being another choice, one among many. Eventually, sin is no more sin at all. Instead, what was sin is now another right, a virtue for those who have managed to redefine all things in their own eyes so as to live according to their own compass. In the end, God and his word are either ignored and abandoned altogether, or God and his word are reinterpreted to support and encourage whatever personal sin man embraces. The good news is that however sad and disheartening all of this is, we can take real hope. The reason is that we have the revelation that no matter how terrible sin and its effects are, we know that God is in the process of reconciliation for his own. Insofar as why sin and evil exist, time and space here prohibit an extended discussion. For those who are interested, I would direct you to the episode entitled, The Problem of Evil. In the meantime, in summary, if we want God to eliminate evil, which is so repugnant to us, then I would submit that God can either choose to vaporize all mankind to do so, or he can choose to redeem and reconcile some while allowing others to be justly punished. To vaporize us all would be completely just for God, but show no mercy. To redeem everyone regardless would show mercy, but no justice. To redeem some and punish others would demonstrate both justice and mercy. In the end, for God to be perfect, he must be perfect in all his attributes, not just the ones we prefer. There's also another level to the good news. In this case, God is in control over all things, even those which seem bad to us. If so, we would expect to be able to look at the record of the fall, 
perhaps arguably the fountainhead of all quote-unquote bad things, and in doing so we should be able to see God's hand at work even in the midst. While we have already looked at the aspects of the fall in the episode entitled The Tree of Knowledge, there may be aspects of the fall which shed light on our current episode and its theme. Turning to Genesis 3, we find the record of the fall. Now, we hopefully all are familiar with the particulars of Adam and Eve's encounter with the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We should be well acquainted with the outcome of that encounter. The traditional summary is that up until chapter 3, everything was considered good and perfect according to God. In this respect, as stated, the creation ordinance of marriage between one man and one woman was also the perfect will of God. Now, there are lessons in abundance regarding this issue both pre- and post-fall, most of which I would not deem to argue with. But I would like to point out that there may be other lessons about this issue which touch on being types and shadows pointing to the substance. For example, we have already suggested what Paul himself points out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Namely, that Adam is the first man of the earth and that Christ is the last Adam who is fully man and fully God. From this, we also extrapolated that Adam's bride, Eve, is the type of the church, the outcalled ones, who are Christ's bride through the new birth. This being the case, let us make several observations that may be instructive. You will first note that when Satan first makes attempt to tempt, he does so on divided terms. Verse 6 of chapter 3 does say that Eve ate, and then she gave unto her husband, i.e. Adam, who was quote-unquote with her. From this, some believe that Adam was standing right next to Eve when the dialogue of the temptation, eating, and fall took place. That may entirely be possible, but using the term quote-unquote with does not necessarily imply that Adam has to be immediately there. Adam can still be in the Garden of Eden generally and still be said to be quote unquote with Eve in the sense that they were both together in the garden. If Adam was quote unquote with Eve in the sense he was standing right next to Eve when Satan launched his temptation, then we must assume that Adam stood by, listened to Satan, and said nothing while Eve engaged in conversation with him. Further, we must assume that Adam made no attempt to intervene or help. Apparently, Adam allowed Eve to do all the talking, Adam allowed Eve to assume the lead, while Adam followed. If so, we must now explain 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, which says, quote, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Unquote. So if Adam was quote unquote, with Eve, listening to Satan, and then ate the fruit based upon Satan's presentation, then both Adam and Eve were in fact deceived. The only way that Paul can say, writing to Timothy, that Adam was not deceived while Eve was, would be because there is something different with regard to how the two respectively ate the fruit.
We know that Adam and Eve were equal at creation, equal at the fall, and equal at redemption. So what's the explanation of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14? I suggest the explanation is found in the last portion of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Speaking of Eve, the verse says, quote, She took the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, unquote. As stated, we get the above idea that the two were side by side at the deception by compressing the above verse into one immediate geographical location occurring at the same moment. However, it is possible to say that Eve was alone being deceived by Satan. She took the fruit and either she ate her share immediately and then went to Adam or went to Adam, and once the two were together with each other at that location, that she then gave a share of the fruit to Adam, who then ate it apart from being privy to the deception incident by Satan. Either way, there are lessons from which we can profit without destruction to the essential message. However, if Adam were absent from the immediate discussion with the serpent, then there is an additional dimension to the story. Namely, if Adam is the continuing type of Christ and Eve is the type of the church, then we see that, as is so often the case, that Satan's best chance of success is always when Eve, who is the type of the church, is operating apart from the will of Christ. Stated differently, if we were to resist Satan, we are told that he will flee from us. More importantly, we are told that the greatest weapon of success that we have is when we rest in the center of God's will. Whenever we attempt to do battle against Satan, the flesh, or the world in our own strength, we do so at our own peril and are ultimately doomed to failure. Historically, this is not only the reality personally as members in the body of Christ, but it is also the fate of the church at large whenever the church forsakes its first love, Christ. Ultimately, perhaps what we are being told is that when Eve, the church, the bride, is one with Adam, i.e. the type of Christ, in a personal, living, immediate relationship of truth and faith, Satan will not have victory. This view takes Eve's role in the fall out of the realm of some superficial accusation or belief that the incident is speaking of some mere supposed male superiority versus female issue. But we are not done. God's word is replete with much more wisdom and guidance regarding marriage. We want to be diligent to search it out and to understand it. At the same time, as was stated at the outset of this episode, it is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstanding which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or His Word. For the time being, this concludes this episode Please join me again for part three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, 
or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.